Hi, welcome back to Honor of Kings here on Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean Griffin, and I'm accompanied by my incredible co-host from Canada. Kenneth Heidebrecht. Hey, Sean, how's it going, brother? What's up, Ken? Good to see you. Thanks for joining me again this week. And guys, I just want to uh, welcome a special guest we have this week with us to look over the Book of Enoch. And this is Zach Bauer from New to Torah. Hey, guys, how you doing? Good to be here. Zach, thank you so much for joining us, brother. I, uh, I have to say... Um, you were on my bucket list, if I can say that, for getting on the show. So I'm so happy that you agreed to come on. And your ministry definitely helped me out, brother, back about seven years ago, six years ago when I saw, I think it was your uh, video, um, Not Under the Law. It was one of your first ones. That really intrigued me and it got me thinking. And uh, that and the uh, 119 Ministries of Old, their stuff. So you were an integral part of my faith walk, brother. So I thank you for coming full circle and actually meeting me in person. And I'm excited to uh, discuss some of these amazing concepts in these couple of chapters of Enoch with you. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Little did, uh, little did Zach know that his ministry efforts was creating Kenneth Heidebrecht, the scriptural juggernaut. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh yeah, we, we appreciate all you've done brother. And we thank you for joining us um, here on this episode of honor of Kings and guys, if it's your first time to see honor of Kings, the whole premise of this show is that we're going to take a look at some of the books that have been removed from the American Canon 66, as well as other books that have made it into other canons around the world, but were not put into the American Canon. And so this is the kind of the concept of us testing the hidden books of the Bible. So um, we feel like it's an honor because they're so far. And as if you've already seen season one uh, so far, as we've tested many of these books, we found out there are very important pieces of information that seem to line up with the canon in such a strong way that makes a wonderful sense of the 66 books uh, where some of the plot holes may have may have been in the past for us, especially for me, because I mean, I've been studying the book for two decades and I, I, I went to Bible college and I had so many questions that just weren't being answered because there seemed to be, you know, missing information from the text. And some of these apocryphal books, well, I, I, I use that word apocryphal because that's what other men have labeled them, but some of them used to be in our canon. And the information that's in them just opens up the scriptures in such in a beautiful way to major integral themes layered throughout the scriptures. For example, like the gospel, the kingdom of God, or the resurrection. And this is uh, this is just to me, it's an honor to be able to dig through these items and look and see which which of these books line up to the canon and which does not. And so this week we're looking at the book of Enoch again. We we looked at it for what twelve or thirteen episodes last year, right, Ken? Yeah, we did thirteen episodes and. Um... I'm really happy that we're revisiting this book, Sean, because honestly, I've missed it. There's some, I mean, I'm biased. I think the entire book is amazing, but I like I like the latter end of the book and the middle parts of the book as well. So I'm really happy that we're reviewing these couple chapters. But uh, yeah, we didn't focus heavy on the actual archaeological kind of historical relevance and importance to the argument about the Book of Enoch, right? In those other chapter or those other episodes that we did last season. But I think maybe we should start with maybe talking a little bit about. Um, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls and and how it was a major important find and, and stuff like that. So, Zach, do you have an opinion on any of that stuff? Oh, yeah, I've got lots of opinions on this. Um, and it's funny, too, because I it's one of the things I love to do, too, is go through a number of these books that are out there that are not included with either our canon or other canons. And, you know, and I, I there's lots of books where I have issues with, you know, I have I have certain things where I don't understand or I can't figure out a way to explain discrepancies. But this book, I can't find one. And I have looked at all the arguments against it. You know, I'm one of these people who tell my audience, 
listen, just because you know you you have found an argument that agrees with you up front, go out and try to find the people who do not agree and then see what their arguments are and learn them. And then uh, see if you can figure out a way to put those together. And so I, I have, you know, searched for a lot of the uh, anti-arguments, anti-Enoch arguments and trying to see if they're valid. And I'm, I can't find an argument against Enoch where I can't make it mend uh, with scripture um, or, or provide an explanation for it. Uh, right. So, um, yeah, this is something, and this, the discovery of Enoch is almost as fascinating as the book itself, uh, you know. So, I, 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 yeah, I've got lots of opinions. So, where do you want to start? <laughs> well, I think it's interesting um, that we have the Ethiopian Etrian Orthodox Church, um, which apparently they have some of the oldest extant copies of Enoch in their Giaz language, uh, including their canons. So when you actually start, I know Sean's on a lot of research and he's going to be putting out documentaries on this, these, uh, these particular churches. But um, when you start looking into the fact that who these people descend from and, you know, how they kind of compile their canon, it really adds, in my opinion, validity to, the, you know, the manuscripts that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that kind of line up with what they have. Yeah, I think um, a lot of the arguments that I've come across is, uh, let me, t let me just start here, I guess, with age. So I'll, I'll, you know, we'll talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and and uh, the content that was found there and the fragments of Enoch that was found there. And uh, people say, oh, well, that only dates back to second century BC. Well, you know, the, the counter argument that I always give to people is say, you know, the oldest copy of Genesis, the oldest fragment that we have of Genesis was found alongside the book of Enoch. And it dates back to second century BC. Right. So for people who to tell me, say, well, Zach, the book of Enoch we have only dates back to the second century BC. Well, guess what? The oldest copy that we have on the planet Earth of Genesis, it's a fragment. It's a it's the fragment of Isaac digging the well uh, is, is the same. It was found in the exact same place and it dates back to the exact same date as the oldest book of Enoch. So that, that right there blows that out of the water. Um, but there, there's again, there's so many roads we can go down when it comes to the book of Enoch and its discovery. Yeah, there's a logical inconsistency with that argument. I absolutely agree. Um, we talked about this previously, right, Ken, about the idea that um, Ezra, the, the priest and scribe in the days of Nehemiah was tasked to actually restore a couple hundred books. Yeah, 204 books. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know that that's the fifth century and not the second century BC, but this was a common practice of ancient Israel of the scribe, hence the concept of a scribe, was they were to detail, catalog, and rewrite for pre to, for preservation, you know, their their texts, you know, and that's that was an important thing for them. It was, a, it was a job, it was a task that was assigned to somebody. So it would only make sense that you would have, coming back from Babylon, you would have them try to restore all their books and then try to keep fresh copies of it throughout the centuries. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And not to mention that, I mean, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found two Aramaic copies of, I think it's the Book of Giants, which is part of the greater Book of Enoch um, in Aramaic. And I think it was Cave 1 and 2. And they also found, um, I believe it was a, a completely intact Greek copy. And if I'm not mistaken, there was a copy of Aramaic um, that one of the uh, the chief editor of the, the Dead Sea Scroll editorial team said that, I think there was four copies that even scholars haven't gotten their hands on because they were privately sold to private right. for quite an expensive amount of, you know, money. And um, one of them was the Aramaic version of the Enoch book. So it's like, 
obviously people want their hands on this stuff, right? Because there's something to it. And unfortunately, we don't have that copy to us readily available. Maybe one day that guy will be generous enough to share with what he's got. But <laughs> no, I, I believe no, I believe that's that's the that's the the plan. Uh, there was a guy uh, who wrote. It was Michael Wise, who was a Dead Sea Scroll scholar. He said, no trace of the similitudes or the parables of Enoch has been discovered at Qumran and is widely considered today to be a composition of the later fifth, first century CE. If a pre-Christian copy of the parables were ever discovered, it would create a sensation. And the reason I, I believe that it would cause a, a sensation is because the reason the Jews reject this is because it's not you don't have a Hebrew copy. Well, if an Aramaic copy is found, that turns it on its head. And supposedly that was found, like you said, you know, no, there, are, there are people who say they have seen it. And there are people who say that it has been photocopied and it's the, the owner of it, some European probably, they think it may be a, a banker or somebody ri really uh, well off who owns this copy is just waiting for the right time to put it up at auction at Christie's or some other high-end auction house to get the most money from it. And so, they have people who have talked about this say, listen, we've seen it. It's been photocopied. We know it's out there and we're waiting for a time to release it to get the most money out of it. And it, at that point, it's going to turn um, it's going to make a look, make a lot of these scholars who have uh, talked bad about the book of Enoch look, look really foolish. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and then not to mention the fact that, like I said, they have the Giaz version of it, which lines up perfectly already with what they have. So right, I mean, it all matches. You have a you have the Greek versions, you have the Giaz versions, and then you have uh, uh, the Aramaic version when it comes out that are going to match. And the people who have already looked at it know it matches. And so you, when the whole Book of Enoch thing first really got going, and this is why I try to explain to people is that they had you know the the version that Robert Bruce or James Bruce came back with, um, and they thought, oh, well, this is all after Christianity. This was, you know, after, you know, fourth century, you know, Christian, Christian work. Well, now all that's been turned on its head. It's been slowly been disproven time after time, after time, after more of these copies are discovered. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, I think you and I probably would think that one of the major reasons for um, Judaism to not endorse the book of Enoch is because of the blatant outright mentions of the son of God and son of man, the elect one that, you know, there is this king that they really don't want to see as part of their narrative, in my opinion. I 100% agree. In fact, some of these chapters we're going to cover today will deal exactly with that topic. And I would even suggest very, you know, tongue in cheek that perhaps some of the people that want to suppress uh, the, the relevance of the book of Enoch and its possible validity might be some of the people that will be mentioned in these topics today. Yeah. <laughs> Could because be. the kings of the earth are brought forth in front of the Son of Man for judgment. So um, these are some exciting chapters. And as you were talking about, you know, them trying to um, ignore the, the book of Enoch and just claim it was a fourth century work. Well, that would mean to me, that would mean that they haven't actually studied the history of Ethiopia itself and to understand their canon and what collection of books they've always had and claimed to scripture. Because um, they've had the book of Enoch and Giaz in their canon, as far as I understand, for 2000 years. So they, you know, if whomever is perpetuating this concept that, oh, the book of Enoch was only fourth century AD, um, has no clue about the Ethiopians and hasn't done their scholarship on that side. And that's that's interesting to me that and of course, we understand we see this kind of suppression of information and very biased, skewed type of information all the time from academia. But that would be a great, a great example.
Yeah. I, I, you know, in all fairness, I, uh, cause I get that a lot, you know, what you just stated as an argument and in all fairness, I had to, cause I get frustrated when I hear that argument. Right. But in all fairness, these people are really having a hard time getting by what they've always been taught in the Christian church or in church in general in religious circles their whole life. And that this book is infallible. It's, it can never be altered. It's, it's perfect. And, you know, they've, they've heard that from the pulpit. It's being ingrained into their mind um, and not realizing that other parts of the world have different books inside that. In fact, at the founding of this country, there was a different number of books inside their Bibles than it is today. So, yeah. um, you know, but people don't realize that they have no knowledge of history. And so um, once they begin to open up and allow themselves to be retaught some things, through historical narrative, then I think, you know, they're more apt to understand, okay, maybe that we can look at this book and, and consider it uh, because other people consider it. Yeah. In fact, know. you remember Ken last year, we actually, I think it was um, episode maybe five, maybe, maybe four, but we went over Enoch chapter 20, where it's listing off the different archangels and their job duties. And that that's where we tried to address one of the rebuttals to Enoch that I've heard the most in my life which is this, uh, was it Fenuel who set over the repentance of men? Yeah. And that's the one that people claim, look, he's taking away Jesus's job. You know, and <laughs> like, what? wait a minute, what? And so, uh, yeah. And most of the, most of the criticism against the book of Enoch from my experience comes from a very uninformed place. And so once you actually, you know, not only are they uninformed about what the book of Enoch itself says, but in a lot of instances, they're very uninformed about the actual canon itself and what it teaches and says and how it explains things. And so that's that's why we're doing this, the digging in on camera for everybody to watch so we can show you when things line up and when they don't. So yeah. you guys ready to get to it? Yeah, and there's a lot of meat to, to cover, so we should probably get going. Outstanding. All right. So, uh, Ken, do you want to start reading first? Yeah, absolutely. So we're in chapter 61 of Enoch, and I'll read probably the first five or six uh, verses here. And I saw in those days how long cords were given to those angels, and they took to themselves wings and flew, and they went towards the north. And I asked the angel, saying unto him, Why have those angels taken these cords and gone off? And he said unto me, They have gone to measure. And the angel who went with me said unto me, These shall bring the measures of the righteous and the ropes of the righteous to the righteous that they may stay themselves on the name of the Lord of spirits forever and ever. The elect shall begin to dwell with the elect. And those are the measures which shall be given to faith and which shall strengthen righteousness. And these measures shall reveal all the secrets of the depths of the earth and those who have been destroyed by the desert and those who have been devoured by the beasts and those who have been devoured by the fish of the sea, that they may return and stay themselves on the day of the elect one. For none shall be destroyed before the Lord of spirits and none can be destroyed. And all who dwell above in the heaven received a command and power and one voice and one light like unto fire. I think we should probably stop there, Sean. There's quite a bit there even being mentioned. Yeah, this is uh, exciting stuff right here. Um, we do, like in the first three verses, they get these ropes to go measure stuff. We do see this kind of um, idea very often in the canon, right? You get the yeah. revelation. He's got the golden reed. He's got an Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel 40, I think, and also in 47, they're measuring things with um, a line and a, a linen cord, I should say, and a golden reed. And so um, we see this kind of concept. It seems interesting that they like to measure things. Yeah, you know? Zechariah 1 as well. Yeah, the Zechariah 1. Doing that. So, now, yeah, it seems that the context, though, of what's being measured isn't maybe a physical object, but much, much more the amount of people 
um, that's in this group being described? Yeah, it's in my opinion, that's kind of, you know, the implication that's written in this is that it's it's referring to the, the righteous and those, yeah. you know, who are the elect ones. Yeah. And so it seems to me that, um, and from my understanding anyway, it seems that, um, well, overall, I guess in a sense, I just think that um, like verse four and five right here, where it says uh, the elect shall begin to dwell with the elect. This, from my understanding of everything we've previously read in Enoch and also in the canon, this would seem to talk about those in the resurrection about to dwell with the angelic beings already in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, yeah, you're right, because we've covered that in other episodes where the elect, the angels are actually referred to as the elect ones as well. And we know yeah. that those who are going to take on the resurrection and, may, and be made like unto the angels at the resurrection are going to be referred to in that same capacity as well. So absolutely. Yeah, I don't think dispensationalists would like this this verse right here in verse four. And those are the measures which shall be given to faith, <laughs> which shall strengthen righteousness. Because I love, this is what I love about the book of Enoch. It uses the word faith just as much as the, the New Testament, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm looking through these verses and you guys already made the point. I mean, you have the measurements is something that's consistent with scripture. You have faith, something that's consistent with scripture. And, you know, all throughout this book, you're reading things that people will throw their arms up and say, how can you believe this? And I'm like, well, how, how are you not seeing the parallels? <laughs> it's because yeah. of their cognitive dissonance, I, know. I would say, unfortunately. But another interesting thing is I can't remember, Sean, you probably remember which, uh, book out of the canon where it's talking about these angels and their measurements and stuff it refers to the measurements are angelic and they're the same as man's so like the it's not like the angels have a different system of measuring things apparently that's the same as how we would measure things yeah that's in revelation 21 i think it's like verse seven or eight whatnot when he's about to measure the actual new jerusalem and he's he says these are these measurements are as as the measurements of angels as well yeah. But, you know, it almost goes back. I mean, that's almost a proof text for Enoch right there, because um, who are who are obviously the angels had the same measuring system. Well, who taught man all these things? It was the angels, you know, that's that right. fallen, obviously, but still they taught them things that man did not yet know. But now man knows them. And so that, that's almost a proof text, in my opinion. Yeah, they taught them a lot of things they shouldn't have been taught. That's for sure. Zach, I want your opinion on uh, if you have one on the title lord of spirits we see that all throughout the book of enoch and that's actually one as sean was saying earlier one of the um you know the objections towards the book of enoch is because wait a minute it's calling god the lord of spirits we've never heard of that one before in any of the other books what do you think about that one brother it's just lord of hosts and you know what i've done in all my presentations i just changed that because i know it throws people for a loop they've never heard that rephrase but all it is is lord of hosts it's yeah. the same thing. And so when I do my presentation, I just switch it out automatically. So not to throw people for a loop. It's the same. I mean, you read the books, you read all throughout the, the, the Bible and there's different um, terms for the same thing based on who the writer is. Uh, yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. I personally love that title. Um, Lord of spirits or Yahweh of spirits, because we know Yahweh is a spirit, right? And one of the other books that we test and have tested rather um, Zach on this show is the book of Jubilees. I'm not sure if you've gone through that one at all. But in the second chapter, we see Yahweh creating all the angels on day number one in chapter two of that book. And he refers to them all as angels of the spirits of this and angels of the spirits of that and goes through a, a huge list of them all. And so it just to me, it, it brings this familial kind of um, 
you know, thing to it where our angels are our brothers, right? They're ministering spirits. They're rooting for us. They're doing things, trying to get us into that family of elect ones, the resurrected ones on the day of the Lord. And so to me, it's just, it, it joins us into that company of the spirits in, in a way. So I, I really do like that terminology, in my opinion. No, I do too. Yeah, I think there's a big misunderstanding from a lot of regular, you know, mainstream church teaching about what this spirit world is, right? They they speak to it in a sense of uh, a non-corporeal, inter interdimensional kind of concept. But from everything I've read in the canon and from these apocryphal books, especially Enoch, it seems much more tangible. Uh, I, since, you know, Yeshua was given a new body at his resurrection, which was like, in, like from his own words in Luke 20, we're resurrected to be like the angels. And we know they have spiritual bodies. Um, yet they may look the same, but they just have different capabilities as Yeshua exemplified in his resurrection body. And with this new promised spiritual body that we're going to have, we will be like the angels in that sense, um, which would make perfect sense if now, you know, uh, to, to have the title for for the father to be Lord of spirits. Because well, we all we already know he's Lord of all things of all creation. But this is a very um, how do I put this? It's almost like a geographical Geo, geocentric um, term, if you will, for the Father, that he's Lord of all the beings in the heavenly kingdom. Since the beginning, the Father has given us guidance. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, Another thing before we can move on, I wanted to point out real quick is just the actual title that's given in verse five here, where it says on the day of the elect one. Now that title has, I think maybe about eight usages in the book of Enoch. And we don't see that anywhere else in the canon, except interestingly enough, I think there can be a parallel made in the book of Luke chapter nine thirty-five, where it says, then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So when we pull up in the Greek, Luke 9.35, the Strong's word number 1586, it is eklego. And I probably said that completely wrong, but I'm not fluent in Greek. So sorry, guys. And uh, the word there can be chosen, elect, elect one, selected. So Nowhere else in, in this, what we would call the canon of 66 have I ever seen Yeshua or Messiah referred to as the elect one other than possibly here. I know most translations use my chosen one, but there's a case that this is in reference or pointing back to a title that we see in Enoch. So. Right. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, that Michael Wise talks about how uh, 
a sensation would occur. And I think the sensation would occur more in Judaism than it would in Christianity. Christianity just is going to have, you know, egg on their face because they've always just kind of discounted this. But the Jews have discounted Enoch because of all the Messiah talk in it and how it really links to Yeshua. And so you have um, things like this show up and it points to the elect one. Um, and comparing that with Luke 39, 35, you know, that that's, you know, they're, they're in real trouble at this point uh, on continuing to deny Yeshua. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I did that debate recently with that rabbi and I mentioned Enoch, that was like an obvious trigger for him. <laughs> well, it, you know, there are, I mean, it seems like to me, you guys probably already know this, but there's some fringe groups in Judaism who kind of just, you know, they, 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 they're interested in Enoch, but they kind of put it in the Kabbalah range or in, in the in the fringe part of Judaism's writings, um, which I find interesting. But um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there is second and third Enoch, right? There's these other kind of, in my opinion, counterfeits to kind of right. take us off the hunt of the real book of Enoch. But I mean, yeah, for sure. Tell me what you guys think about this. But here at the end of verse five, where it says uh, that they may return and stay themselves on the day of the elect one. For none should be destroyed before the Lord of Spirits, and none can be destroyed. Now, given the, the context of the previous three verses that we just read about who these elect that they're talking, who who these are that are going to return and stay themselves on the Messiah, I feel like this is speaking about the resurrected saints because this is why, you know, as we're promised from Yeshua, I think it's in um um I think it's also going to be in Luke 20, verse 22, where he says, And you and they, you know, we may like the angels and will not be able to die. Yeah. Right. And so this is a, a moment here where we're given our incorruptible bodies. We're made perfect as Hebrews 11 verse 39 and 40 talks about. Also, uh, Hebrews 10, 1, this idea of being made perfect. Um, and then, of course, this is why we'll never transgress again. We have his laws eternally written on our hearts and we'll be you know, in the land with him to stay ourselves on the Messiah, to be able to dwell with him. The promise of Ezekiel 37 um, with, you know, in his sanctuary forever and we'll never be able to be destroyed, you know. And so yeah. I just, it seems like a beautiful promise thrown in here. Yeah. The passage that you just referred to out of Luke, I think parallels with what um, Yeshua also says in John 10, verse 28 to 29, which says, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So I think that lines up with what we see here in, in Enoch. Um, Absolutely. They can't yeah. be destroyed. They can't be plucked out of the Father's hand. Once once you're saved, once you're born again, like raised into your incorruptible body, there's no death from that point. Yeah, that was the verse that came to my mind uh, right away was John 10. What was the one you had? Was it Luke 20? Yeah, I believe it. Let me look it up real quick. I believe it's Luke 20, verse 22 is where Yeshua is talking about us may like the angels and not being able to die. Let me make sure on that. It was the John 10 that popped into my mind uh, when we first read that. And then... Oh, yeah. But uh, I have, I was again, you know, you guys are making lots of parallels that I have not yet made. <laughs> okay, Luke 2022 20, is about Caesar. Okay, one second. Let me, um, but that's a great, that's a great parallel. Uh, so I want to get them both. Now, yeah, sometimes, and you'll see this, like, Zach, if you ever watch any of our shows, sometimes you'll see this. We'll, we'll make, uh, we'll cite wrongly. But we'll be like one, you know, number away, right? And so yeah, then yeah, yeah. After, when I'm in editing, I'll put the correct verse on the screen for the viewer. But um, but yeah, you'll see me do that from time to time, and Ken just laughs at me. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, Zach, I, mean, I, think I, I did the same. I do the exact same thing in my videos, so it's okay. <laughs> we call yeah. Sean the, the, that, the Sean Cyclopedia because he actually he's probably nine times out of ten he's when he does refer to a scripture he's he's bang on and it's yeah. 
It's crazy. <laughs> um, let me see here. And of course, now my computer is going to run super slow. So one second. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm looking for that one too. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, uh, Luke 20, 36. Uh, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain the world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Yeah. So Luke 20, 36. Yeah, there it is. Thank you, Zach. You're okay. Welcome. I was I was a few 14 verses off. So that's all right. That's close. That's close. <laughs> Proximity. Yeah. Yeah. See, I always hit the dartboard, but I never win an actual dart game. Well, close only counts for horseshoes and hand grenades. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so let's see here. Um, yeah, that's that's what it reminds me of, essentially, is this idea of uh, who these elect are and the same promises that we see, you know, the Messiah referencing this same group of people. And what's fascinating to me is versus the beginning of verse five. Um, where it's talking about where these where these group where this group of people is actually being measured because this you know if this is the first time for you to see this show or in this episode or forever you to, first time to see the book of Enoch itself please go back and watch uh, I think it was episode seven from last year where we reviewed Sheol Tartarus and the prison of the stars which we went into Enoch chapter 22 which gives us an understanding of what the beginning of verse five here would be talking about talking about the secrets of the depths of the earth. Right. And so to understand Sheol and how Enoch in the same book has already described that context to us of where these these um, resurrected spirits would be coming from. And so that's important to understand. Yeah, because we see um, we see that Hades and the sea gives back their dead. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. so there's there's things right. that have to give back their dead on in this specific time qualifying. Uh, Those who have been devoured by the fish of the sea. Yeah. I mean. Again, I mean, there's so many verses. <laughs> Another reason why to stay out of the sea, in my opinion. I mean, everyone makes fun of me. I'm, I'm an East Coast boy and we have the ocean here, but I won't go past 20 feet into the water because I don't want to be one of these guys that has to be given up from the sea. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is, to me, this is another fascinating idea of, of I think what we're going to read about is another mention of the sea if I'm not mistaken, in, in the next chapter, when it's the wicked being judged, um, which which kind of reminds me of Amos, you know, where they if they try to hide in the depths of the sea uh, or if they try to ascend into heaven from there, he will bring them up. You know, um, no, no, I think I said that a little poorly, but um, the point is it, there's there's a lot of mentions in the scriptures about the sea itself. Like you like we read in the, like Revelation 20, whether it's given up dead or whether things are trying to hide at the bottom of the sea or under the sea, right? Um, and that they actually have to be brought forth for judgment when the Messiah returns. And it's, it's a fascinating concept to me. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know how they say that, what, 95% of the ocean hasn't been explored? Right. So it just makes me wonder about fringe topics. <laughs> <laughs> so are there really cities down there that we don't know about? <laughs> I don't know, but but I already know that this is like this isn't conspiracy concept. This is just common sure. knowledge. This idea of um, the military, at least the United States military, they have these deep underground military bases that they've been digging for like thirty years, and um, there are some of them are a mile deep, you know. And you can Google the big drilling machines and the engineers mm -hmm. who designed them standing in front of them for their photo op, and you know that's just what they're telling us. Right? So, you know what I mean? We always know they're doing something far ahead of time and much worse than what they're even revealing to us publicly. So it just makes me wonder if they already have figured out how to somehow 
drill under the ocean floor and create some sort of habitation or just transport system. Who knows? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because yep. that's me. Like, and I don't know what you guys think about it, but to me, that's what I've always thought when I found out about these big tunnels being traversed underneath the United States. It, it, you know, from a military strategic standpoint, I thought, okay, well, that would make sense. If you're being invaded on the East Coast, you're trying to mobilize all your West Coast forces to the East Coast, but you don't want to spend all that time going over the Rockies and going through all the towns and all the stuff you have to deal with. You just need a straight subway tunnel, straight shot from one coast to the other. That makes great sense. I understand the practical planning involved, but there's a ton of other uses you could do as well as including what we're going to read about later, which, which makes me think of these Kings of the earth trying to hide on yeah. the day of the Lord when the Messiah shows up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely brother. And they're, they're going to get judged. We're going to get to that. And yeah, I agree. So the elect ones there in context within verse five, um, where it says for none shall be destroyed. I mean, we know there's going to be a great deal of people going to be destroyed on that day before the Lord of spirits, but that's kind of the juxtaposition that we want to, um, reveal here is that there's those who are taken on the resurrection. You have nothing to fear. You're not getting destroyed at that juncture. It's the kings and the and the ones, the wealthy ones of the world who've been corrupting this earth system for as long as they have. They're the ones that are going to reveal this wrath and and we're gonna see more as we continue through this book. So, so further ado, shall we uh, move forward, guys? Or is there anything sure. else? Yeah, Zach, do you want to read the next few verses? Yeah, we're starting at six or seven. I thought forgot where we stopped. Uh, seven. Yeah, okay. if you will, just like read six through nine, and we'll stop right there real quick. Okay, sounds good. And all who dwell in heaven received a command and power, one voice and one light like to fire. And they blessed him with their first words and exalted and praised him in their wisdom. And they were wise in utterance and in the spirit of life. And the Lord of spirits placed the elect one on the throne of glory, and he shall judge all the works of the holy above in heaven. And in the balance, their deeds shall be weighed. And when he shall lift up his face to judge their secret ways, according to the word of the name of the Lord of hosts, Lord of spirits, and their path, according to the way of the righteous judgment of the Lord of spirits, then they shall speak, all speak with one voice and bless and glorify and exalt the name of the Lord of spirits. Wow. Uh, amen. I like that one. <laughs> I yeah, guess all, all God's people will be saying amen, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what you're reading here. And again, there's just so many parallels with so many verses that you see in Scripture that um, once you list them out or once you take the time just to go through that short snippet and look them all up. Uh, yeah. Oh, just, I mean, it's yeah. like the writers were, you know, were new. That's why one of the points I make, the writers knew this book. You know, the prophets knew this book. Oh, yeah. Well, that's part of the argument, uh, Zach, is, is, you know, the book of Jude, quoting verbatim from, you know, the book of Enoch. And, oh, I mean, John and I believe there's like hundreds of references throughout the Gospels with Yeshua, John, Peter, Jude, John, like all of these guys were referring to things all the way back in the book of Enoch. And mm -hmm. you don't, if you don't know what it is that they're saying in these um these writings, then sure, you can come to the book of Enoch and think, oh, this seems foreign. It, it's written in a weird way and, and stuff like that. But as Sean said earlier, if you're not as studied um, in what we would call the Bible, the, you know, the established canon of 66, then I, then I guess your argument makes somewhat sense to you. <laughs> no, no, I, I, and I get it. You know, people aren't. Uh, but once you go back and you read the, the prophets and you understand where they're coming from and then the over... The underlying storyline throughout all the prophets is how is he going to restore the ruin? That's that's the question all the prophets had. How is he going to restore? How is this going to play out in the end? 
And they were still asking that in Yeshua's day. And Yeshua says, I'm not come before the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, great. How are how is the father going to bring them back? Well, you read it with that context. And you know, and the prophets talk about how he's he's going to bring them back. And this is gonna how it's gonna happen, but how? Well, it's the same question, same overlying concept in here. There's going to be a time when the ruin will be restored. And yeah. you see so many things repeated throughout the book of Enoch in that in that context. But yeah. And that, that was probably what we read about earlier in verse five, where it says they, that they may return and stay themselves. Right. On the day they elect one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a, even a little subtle mention again of that concept right there. Um, Cause you can't return if you haven't left. Right. So it includes, <laughs> it assumes the idea that you've already been either scattered left, you know, moved away. So um, what I'm seeing in these verses that you just read verse six through nine, this idea of, you know, um, they extolled it. They extolled and lauded with wisdom that they were utterance in the spirit of life. Lord of spirits placed the elect one on the throne of glory. He shall judge all the works of the holy above in the heaven and in the balance shall their deeds be weighed. Now, conceptually, to me, this would line up with Matthew 28, 18, where Yeshua tells us that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Yeah. So it would only make sense that the Messiah would judge things in heaven above as well. And as well as um, what is it? I think it's in first Corinthians six. Paul makes that statement about you know, um, about trivial cases. And he says, do you not know that you'll judge matters of angels? Um, and so this concept of if we're made like Yeshua into this royal priesthood at the resurrection, then it would only make sense if Yeshua is judging angels that we are also in a, in a sense of authority judging angels as well. And from a, and, you know, and I don't know if Zachary, I don't know if you've ever seen, by the way, real quick, I don't want to, I don't want to offend you. I, I just naturally say Zachary, but if you just want me to say Zach. No, it's fine. Whatever. Either way, it's fine. <laughs> Sorry about that. It just kind of comes out. Um, but yeah, Zach, I don't know if you've ever seen some of the, the videos that I've done on my channel where I, I try to break down the priesthood of Yeshua in a, in a sense of from the actual Torah, from the Old Testament to help people understand why it's so important for him to maintain that role and what qualifies as a priest and how Yeshua's obedience qualified him for that, which is, you know, for example, like Hebrews chapter five, verse seven through 10 would explain to us with great detail. Um, and it's the same idea here with the angels, as far as being set apart for a priesthood and what that means. And so what, from everything I've understood, Ken and Zach at the resurrection, we're made like Yeshua at the resurrection, his resurrection body in a set apart way. That's greater than the angels themselves. Because as we've seen from the book of Enoch itself, they can even transgress if they choose to. Yeah. But in the beginning of the book of Enoch in chapter five, verses six through nine, it says that we will not even be able to sin once this day happens. And so it makes me wonder if we're given this incorruptible body and in this new heart made of flesh, whereas we cannot even sin. Therefore, we're at a set apartness, uh, even above the angels, giving us the legal right to even judge the angels because we're set apart greater than them. Yeah, have you ever wondered, I mean, has this thought ever entered your mind? I know it has mine. You know, what happens when everything is restored and someone screws up again? Are we going to have to do this all over? <laughs> it better you know, not I mean, be the cyclical Is this going to be a continuing cycle that happens, you know, and someone <laughs> eats an apple somewhere and then, you know, for the next 7,000 years we have to go through, you know. So, <clears throat> but no, I mean, he's going to make it to where this doesn't happen again. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't want to do this over. <laughs> yeah, Sean and I, absolutely. Sean and I, as I was mentioning before we started airing the show with you, Zach, we we did a, a different series um, called The Road to Rescue where we talk about the day of the Lord and just some of the things that take place on that day and then through the millennial reign. And it, it, I think, in my opinion, from what I've studied, um, 
you know, there's going to be mortal people, people, survivors of the day of the Lord who are still mortal, who don't take on the resurrection. And so, you know, they're going to still, even though Satan will be removed from their midst, as well, along with all the demons and, and all those spiritual entities that are creating havoc in the earth, there's still possibility to sin. I mean, they're still, they haven't been given that made perfect status yet, right? So mm -hmm. you, they will be able to eat from the tree of, or from the um, leaves of the tree of life and have water, uh, access to the water of um, life that comes from the throne of God, uh, which will give them longer life. As we saw, you know, some of the patriarchs of old, they right. still apparently are going to be able to, they don't, they won't have to come up to certain feast days, as you know, right? If they don't come for certain feast days, Yahweh won't rate rain on their land so you have the ability to transgress during that time period which is interesting but my, my personal opinion on how that comes to be because i've thought about that a lot too is that you know because enoch talks a lot about abortion um there's two mentions of it basically where people men are killing their children um you know what happens to those babies because they don't they never had a chance to choose i think during the judgment that happens before the millennium the the, the world is basically destroyed by fire and you have now all the resurrection. And I think all those kids that were aborted are going to be resurrected as well. And they're going to have their chance to choose during this next thousand years. So there's going to be sin. They're going to have a chance to sin or not. And now this is just my opinion. OK, this is just how I see it working. You know, I'm not saying this is how it's going to be, but I'm trying to, you know, we always try to play things in our head <clears throat> and ask questions. Well, you know, what about these babies who didn't have a chance to do that? And the people say they, they say what you just said. Hey, listen, it's obvious that sin is still occurring. There's obviously people who are not making right decisions as not coming up to, you know, for the Feast of Tabernacles and not getting rain on their land. Well, why is that? Well, I think there's going to be a whole lot of millions and millions and millions of uh, children who are offered up and who never got the chance to choose. And some of them are going to choose righteousness and some of them are not. Again, just just my opinion. But uh, it gives maybe a little bit of ability of why we see that in, in that thousand years. Yeah. Yeah, I I, um, I find what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 with regard to this really interesting where it says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, which would include death and Hades and all that. Right. Um, so we know that Yeshua is going to be the king of the kingdom during the 1000 year millennial reign. Right. And so he's going to clean everything up during that process. And then right at the very end, he hands it back to the Father. In my mm -hmm. opinion, that's when we have these other mortals that are still alive during that time who are going to have to take on their own resurrection, the second resurrection at the end. That's, this is my opinion once again. And, um, that's when we see Zach, this full, beautiful right. mosaic complete. And now we can't go back into the cyclical pattern of sin, right? Where all, right. everyone took it on the resurrection at that point. Boom. Right. Because if that's the case, my, my goodness, brother, we're, I, I can't even picture that. Right. I can't either. I don't want to do yeah, that. I want to picture <laughs> I can't picture, you know, having to do this over and over again, but I can't picture, you know, just, I don't even know how it's going to be. You can't fathom something like this, but just having it go away, just having it all, you know, what's that going to look like? I don't mm. I have no idea. Yeah. You mean having sin go away? Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. that going to look like? That's just, I mean. It's, apparently it's going to look like um, to the extremity of babies playing near adder's holes and being okay. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds ridiculous. Like, uh -huh. but praise God for that, you know. Yeah.
Shalom, brothers and sisters. This is Ken Heidelberg here at Hanging on His Words. Because I love the Father and His only begotten Son so very much, and am extremely excited about their kingdom to come, I want to communicate their message of the gospel of the kingdom of God to you and to anyone who will listen, as every human being is a part of this extraordinary narrative. So, feel free to find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and, yes, the Twitters, to join in on what the Father is doing in these last days. Um. Yeah, and this, this concept that we're reading about in Enoch six, uh, chapter 61, 6 through 9, of him judging uh, all this concept, this to me, it, it, it has reminiscence. It makes me be mindful of Revelation 11 um, here in, I think it's verse 15, where it says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones fell before God fell on their faces and worship God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the almighty who, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bond servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So in this latter part of verse 18, where he's talking about rewarding different groups of people. And I know he does mention the prophets and the saints, and then he goes on to say, those who fear names, small and great. This, to me, could also include the angels like we're seeing here where he's he's rewarding. It's this, this concept of judging them is not in the sense of them receiving some sort of punishment. But it's just like we're going to be judged. The house of God is going to be judged. But yet we're giving, you know, some of our works are burned up. Some remain. We're giving a judgment that's not one that sends us to Sheol or to the lake of fire. But we're giving, you know good judgment, right? We're giving a sense of being rewarded for our effort, for our obedience. And so it would only make sense that the same concept plays out for the angelic beings as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good passage there, Sean. That's good. So that's just an interesting concept to me, but um, because he's talking about judging their secret, secret ways in verse nine. And we, that's what we read about earlier in the book of Enoch is how apparently these rebellious angels that came down were dis- were revealing these, some of these secret ways to mankind. And this was a big no-no. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Oh, by the way, I actually had someone that that wanted to reject the book of Enoch so so sternly. Um, tell me that in Genesis 6, 1, where it says the Benaha Elohim, you know, took daughters from among mankind and, and had, you know, took wives of whomever they chose and had children by them. And he tried to tell me that that word in Hebrew is just it's just a word for man. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, what? So this is, you know, he was really struggling. And this was a guy that claims to speak Hebrew. Uh, he was a rabbi. So he was trying, he was really struggling with you. I said, what about in Job 1 and 2? Or, you know, the Benaha Elohim came before Yahweh and Satan came with him. He's like, oh, no, this is just talking about men. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, that's just, I don't want to. So much denial. Yeah, la, la, you know. But no, yeah. I, I have found, I mean, this is how I open up my presentation on Enoch, is that, listen, the bottom line, reason why people reject Enoch is this. They can't, they can't comprehend the uncomfortable topic of angels and women. They can't comprehend that. That's what it all comes down to. You, they can make any argument you want, any argument you want against Enoch, contradictions, you know, whatever. But it, all it comes down to is the uncomfortable reality of angels and women. And, and they don't want to go with, but there's lots of other uncomfortable topics in scripture, you know, that, that are reality. You know, you can marry, you know, in Christianity, you go into a Baptist church and say, you know what, me and my cousin are going to get married. 
That's crazy. You don't, but it's in scripture. It's okay. And there's nothing in scripture that speaks against that. But in, in the Christian church, that's, that's crazy. Or that Abraham married his half sister. And now after the Torah was given, that's now not, not valid, but he did do that. But you never, you never hear that talked about in the Christian church because it's an uncomfortable topic. Mm. There's lots of uncomfortable topics in the Bible. Uh, this is just one of them that really, you know, people, people use it's the bottom line, whether they admit it or not of why they reject Enoch. Yeah. Speaking of uncomfortable topics and angels and, and human women, this to me would be where if if I were if I grew up in Ethiopia, you know, um, and I had the Bible that they use, that that wouldn't even seem like a weird thing because the book of Jubilees in chapter 15, verse 27, it says that the angels were made circumcised upon their creation, which assumes a lot of things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this would make perfect sense that they could come down and take a woman and unite with them. Because well, it's funny they, because, yeah, there, there's people who say they don't, you know, they don't even have those parts. Well, how do you know? Yeah. Well, obviously <laughs> they do, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, that's another interesting topic just regarding angels in itself is, you know, we see angels show up as men throughout the scriptures, you know, in Genesis, we see it over and over again. And that's one of the interesting characteristics. I mean, Sean and I would discuss this in other episodes that angels are given the ability, at least the watcher class angels were given the ability to do that. They can assume many forms. And one of them is in the form of man. And that's how they show up a lot of times in, you know, Genesis and a lot of the other prophets. So yeah, why not? And, and, and according to Ezekiel 44 and Isaiah 52, if they do uh, assume a form of man, then they must be circumcised to be in the father's sanctuary above mm -hmm. because he, he will not have anything unclean or anything uncircumcised in heart or in flesh being in his presence. So it's um, it, it makes a lot of sense when you just take all these things as they're described from all these different books. But since when, when we break it up and we only have so many books to work with, it leaves a lot of open questions. So. That's because you have mastered what is called critical thinking skills. Most people have not done that. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, if you like, I'll just start. I'll read the rest of this chapter real quick. Sure. Yeah, finish it out, Sean. Yeah. So verse 10 says, And he will summon all the hosts of the heavens and all the holy ones above, and the host of God, the cherubim, the seraphim, the ophanim, and all the angels of power, and all the angels of principalities, and the elect one, and all the powers on the earth and over water, and on that day shall raise one voice and bless and glorify and extol in the spirit of faith and in the spirit of wisdom and in the spirit of patience and in the spirit of mercy and in the spirit of judgment and of peace and in the spirit of goodness. And shall all say with one voice, blessed is he. May the name of the Lord of the spirits be blessed forever and ever. All who sleep not above in heaven shall bless him. All the holy ones who are in heaven shall bless him and all the elect who dwell in the garden of life. And every spirit of light who is able to bless and glorify and extol and hallow your, your blessed name. And all flesh shall beyond measure glorify and bless your name forever and ever. For great is the mercy of the Lord of spirits, and he is long-suffering. And all his works and all that he has created, he has revealed to the righteous and elect in the name of the Lord of spirits. Wow, what a picture, eh? Amazing. So for all the, and Zach, you can tell me what you think about this, but I, I like at, at the very end here how it, it tags on, or it says it a couple times in these four verses, but at the very end, it tags on this idea in the name of the Lord of Spirits. So why doesn't it just say in the name of the Tetragrammaton? I I think it's it's something that's talked about, mentioned many times in Scripture already. There's already parallels. Um, you can find, I think it's the, the end writing of any great work or any great text where his praise is given as the very last thing to, to be remembered by the writer. 
you know, so um, I just I, I see that as consistent with all kinds of uh, scriptures, you know, prophets, writings, things like that. So um, I don't think I'm it matters. Sorry, I, was, I was making a little joke towards the sacred name crowd. Just, oh, well, just, okay. Yeah. <laughs> just the well, idea that it we don't even have the the the, the Yod Vav revealed yet. So we've got a prophet ha having to reference, you know, the father. But what by what name, right? And so this is why, in my opinion, and, and I don't I don't know how you gentlemen agree with this or not, but in my opinion, it seems to me from all the references of the idea of quote unquote in the name is referring to the authority. Yeah. It's almost like an idiomatic phrase for authority and not a specific name that was given because Yahweh is not even revealed until Moses gets there, right? right? So all these other prophets just called him the Almighty and or the Lord of Spirits. And so therefore he's if they're referencing the authority of the the most high um the almighty then and they don't even know his actual name yet then of course they're going to be talking about in the net in the name of and that's where it's to me it's more of a reference to just his authority but i could be wrong i think it's interesting too also in, in verse 10 you have cherubim and seraphim and uh, there's a distinction between the two just like there is in the book of isaiah uh again holding true with the you know just the parallels there, you know, it's, it's, it's that way in Isaiah. It's also that way in, in Enoch. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought too, Zach, when I was reading that part, um, there's several passages. I mean, we've seen revelation four, um, where it talks about all these creatures, the living creature with the face of an ox and the face of a man, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was, is, and is to come. Right. And we actually see that in, um, I think it's first Enoch 39 where they're actually shown to be yeah, saved. I actually have it right here. It's in my presentation. Uh, yeah. So you found that, that parallel too, eh, where they say the same yeah, thing there. Absolutely. Yeah. And it kind of goes through the, you know, the old Testament um, parallels. And I, I, I usually link quite a bit uh, Isaiah and, and Enoch with the description of the throne that Isaiah gives us. Um, you know, even John would gives us, and yeah. so I think it's Enoch 39, 14. It says, those who do not sleep bless you, and they stand before your glory and bless and praise and exalt you and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And um, I yeah. believe, let me see if I can find the parallel. Let's see, we have a couple different parallels in Isaiah. Isaiah 6, 3, it says, the one who cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then Isaiah 6, 4, and the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke also described in Enoch. And then, um, yeah. So, I mean, there's just various references between or similarities between the description that Isaiah gives and uh, Enoch gives. Yeah. I like how in verse 12, Zach, where the first sentence there, where it says all who sleep not above in heaven shall bless him. And so we know that there's particular angels or classifications of angels like the seraphim and cherubim that do not sleep, right? We don't really get to see that other than it just being inferred in like Revelation 4, where it says, you know, they never cease to say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But then Enoch says, these guys don't sleep. They yeah. simply don't sleep. They're <laughs> just, you know, no need for coffee or anything. These guys just, yeah. boom. <laughs> so I love it. And it's reiterated in the same book of Enoch, uh, chapter 71, verse 7, where it says that the uh, seraphim, the cherubim, the ophimim surround his throne. And these are those who never sleep, but guard the throne of his glory. So interesting to even think about that, eh? That Yahweh has these crazy, like zealously jealous for his name guardians that surround his throne. And there was another book, Zach, that uh, Zach or that Sean and I uh, were discussing last season, the Apocalypse of Abraham. I'm not sure if you've seen that one or not, but 
Mm -hmm. And that one, Abraham is taken up to the throne of Yahweh and he's taken there by this angel named Jael. And he's being shown these cherubim and how their faces line up perfectly with the descriptions we see in Revelation, also here in Enoch. And they were looking at each other and they're starting to get angry with each other. And this angel had to say, hold, stay right here, Abraham. I have to go take care of something. He rushes over to them and like turns their faces from each other because he's like the bouncer essentially for these two. It was, it's really interesting to read, but these things are just so insanely passionate for the father. It's, it's just a cool little adjunct <laughs> to the scriptures. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. So what, what's being mentioned from what I'm seeing in verse 12, what you guys just, just talked about, just all the, the ones who sleep, not the holy ones and the elect who dwell in the garden of life. And then it goes on to qualify even further and says in every spirit of light, who is able to bless and glorify. So this kind of would be a callback to what we were talking about earlier about those who are called the elect who at the beginning of this chapter, who are taken to the garden of life, which I think we would all agree is the, you know, the house of God, the new Jerusalem, the paradise of God, that they're called spirits of light. Yeah. Right. So now, you know, like we're children of the light as we're being talked about. Right. So now we've right. uh, revelation 22, five, we've been illumined by Yahweh. We've been illumined by God. And so this is a very, you know, kind of a subtle inference to that as we're grouped into these people being described as spirits of light. But overall, verse 10 to me just blows my mind because if you really like take a bird's eye view of what's happening here, you got it says he summons all the hosts of heaven and then starts listing off everything. But then he includes the elect one, which I think all of us would agree is the Messiah yep. as well as all these other concepts. And it's almost like they all just take a moment to just stop and just with one voice shout and praise the father. Mm -hmm. You know, how beautiful is that? You know, you got the king of heaven, which I would say is the elect one and the authority of the father and everything else up there just takes a moment and just to stop and praise him, you know? And I just think that's amazing. But it, but then it says down here at the end of verse 12, mm -hmm. after it mentions every spirit of light who is able to bless and glorify and extol, it says, and all flesh shall beyond measure glorify and bless your name forever and ever. So <clears throat> this kind of goes into some of our conversations, kind of what we're talking about is like, what exactly is a spirit being, right? Yeah. Am, am I to say that this flesh word being mentioned is talking about the survivors of the day, of the Lord, the humans that are like Isaiah 60 talks about another in Revelation 21, they're all brought to the new Jerusalem, you know, to, as Isaiah 2, 2 through 5 explains, the law will go forth from Zion. You know, they're all brought there to be taught, you know, uh, the righteousness of God, basically the wisdom of God. Or is it referring to angelic concepts that do have flesh, like we see Ezekiel 37 talk about, yet it's not the same type of flesh that you and I have right now. It's like this glorified flesh. Yeah. Yeah. No, what I see there, Sean, is where it says in every spirit of light. So we have kind of a, you know, kind of a, a line drawn down the middle, if you will. So we have the, yeah. all those who are going to take on the spirit of light. Because we know that James says that the father of light, and as you said, we're already called children of light, proleptically, which is kind of a faith term for what we're going to experience during the resurrection. We know we're going to be children of light when we take on the resurrection. Um, you know, we have that compared up against and all the flesh. So we have that classification of these spirits of light, which is going to include those who take on the resurrection plus all flesh. So I, I agree. I think it is talking about the survivors of the day of the Lord, the mortals who are going to live right. through the millennial yeah. reign. Which I is agree. a beautiful picture. You know, everything yeah. on earth, everything that's alive is going to, no one will have deception anymore. You know, everyone will see the truth and just worship um, father and son. 
Because, you know, I, also, I often see, you know, all flesh and some things, and I think it's got to be animals, too. There's got to be some kind of way to – because in the first time when he judged the world by water, he preserved the animals in a way. There's got to be and, – and in Isaiah, was it 14, 8? I mean, the trees cry out and worship him. So um, there's got to be a preservation somehow like the first time judgment came. Uh, the second time around, how's that going to look, you know? And so I, I often speculate in my mind, you know, how is he going? Cause all flesh, all flesh will worship him. Um, you know, so anyway, going into conspiracy theories, you know, did the animals used to talk before the curse? Uh, obviously we had the, you know, the serpent who did, uh, was that just a talking donkey, you know, one-time thing? I don't know. Um, but you know, you just, it lends to speculation, but all flesh is going to glorify him, not just those. And there will be a, some sort of preservation that takes place uh, with his, with the rest of his creation as well. Yeah, brother. Well, if you read the book of Jubilees, um, right at the beginning of the book, it talks about how all animals, including Adam and, and Eve, they all spoke with one tongue. Yeah. So, and then he ended up closing the, the tongues of the animals when they were all. Yeah, I'm aware of that book. I have that book here too. And, and but you know, there's, uh, you know, there, again, there's a lot of people who debate that back and forth. And I have not spent near uh, the the time that I, in Jubilees, that I have with Enoch. Yeah. Um, but even though I have read it. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, so if, if that's true, which I, I tend to lean that way, um, yeah. then yeah. I lean that way too because I mean it's if we go back to the story or the instance with Balaam and the donkey right he did he wasn't like flabbergasted that this thing was all of a sudden speaking to him right I right. think that he had the understanding that all animals did speak at right. one point and that this thing like all animals had its mouth shut yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. otherwise I mean that doesn't make sense it's like he's getting angry at this donkey as opposed to obviously asking the question how on earth are you talking to me right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, that um, man, what a day would that be, right? He just a deer walks up to you and just starts asking you about your day. Um, he's gonna he's gonna ask me or tell me, I'm glad you're not eating me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, Oh, see, Zach, you don't have your gun with you anymore. <laughs> That's right. Um, but to me, this is a this is just whole these last four verses are just beautiful. Um, not because of just a typical concept of just praising God, because some people don't see a lot of a lot of like if they haven't gotten to a point in their walk with the father where they really understand what this means to to just have complete surrender in their life and to understand with the sense of humility that he really is in charge of all things, you know, and this is that type of humility that all these angelic hosts and even his son, the Messiah understands. Right. And that's why that, you know, all praise is directed to the father. And it's just an amazing concept to see here um, all the things included, you know, and that's and that that would. To me, it would be a great testimony. The New Jerusalem sets down, which is considered the kingdom of heaven, and everything inside there can be viewed by the people outside the city so they can learn this sense of humility, this sense of righteousness. They're going to learn the laws of God. They're going to learn the heart of God, right? How to have a circumcised heart. Um, and, then, and I think, think it's just an amazing concept that, you know, if this happened after the New Jerusalem sets down, then what a testimony this would be for all the survivors to see is everything inside the city stops for a moment just to praise the Father.
Thank <laughs> you.